Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroh. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak to the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today I'm joined by Craig Lilly, M&A and corporate partner at the law firm Baker McKenzie in their Palo Alto office. Craig's practice focuses on acquisitions, divestitures, joint ventures, and strategic investments, but it's in complex cross-border deals where he's really developed great expertise and is now thought of as an industry leader. Craig's been a regular contributor on Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, and other M&A-specific publications. Craig, welcome to the program, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Patrick. I'm glad to be on the program. Well, Craig, now that we're getting past the first quarter here in 2019, rather than just focusing on cross-border deals, which we're going to get into in depth, tell me what your perspective is as an expert on what the state of M&A is here in 2019. Well, I think M&A is very strong and still in 2019, uh, the value is, is increasing even though the volume may be slightly lower. 79% of executives say that uh, M&A will increase and in, or remain the same in 2019. We're seeing, you know, record amounts of uh, private equity raise as well as venture raise, which is really good for the ecosystem in mergers and acquisitions. In the last 12 months alone, we've seen over 3.6 trillion in deal value, over 19,000 deals so in, in US and Europe. So that's very strong. Technology M&A is up 20%. Also, we're seeing M&A more institutionalized. 20% of all targets are backed by either private equity, venture firms, or professional investors. Also, there's record levels of what we call dry power, powder or money to make acquisitions. The PE dry powder is estimated to be over 1.7 trillion. And also the top five tech companies alone have over 340 billion in dry powder. And that includes Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and Amazon. So the key M&A drivers that we're seeing are really uh, for strategics are customer expansion and diversification. And so those are all, I think, big drivers for M&A, which will continue in 2019. Well, we've got just a confluence of changes that have been happening over the world where you've got either the world getting flatter or a lot of capital looking for places to be put. And maybe people aren't looking in their backyards anymore. They're looking overseas. They're looking cross-border. And which is why I wanted to come and speak with you about this. But before we get into the the technical issues on cross-border and the ins and outs of it, give us a little bit of context for you. What brought you into becoming an M&A attorney first and then to specialize in cross-border acquisitions? Well, I had a background in finance and accounting, so I was always interested in in M&A and investments, which really drew me into it. I originally worked in, in private equity back in the cottage days of private equity when it was a very early industry. And then I started working in, in technology over the last uh, 16 years or so. And one of the things too that really interests me about the technology and, and M&A is that companies at earlier and earlier stages are expanding internationally which is a big driver of cross-border M&A. So those are the things that really interest me is the international aspects, the complexity, and also getting to learn new industries and verticals. So what makes 
a deal across border transaction? Is it as simple as we think, just anything outside outside the U.S. borders? Well, really, it's it's really any deal with foreign aspects. It could be the buyer, the seller, or material assets, or it could be a U.S. company acquiring another U.S. company that has material foreign assets as subsidiaries. So typically, almost every kind of major U.S. corporation has some type of foreign aspect. So all those uh, acquisitions, even though it may be a domestic acquisition, really is a cross-border because of the foreign uh, aspects or subsidiaries that a U.S. company may have. And we're seeing this at earlier and earlier stages of companies. A, a lot of early companies or young companies are expanding overseas, whether to develop technology, develop manufacturing, or to acquire customers through diversification. A lot of times we're thinking of U.S. going outside and, and uh, looking to foreign markets for acquisition targets. But it's also on the flip side, according to what you just told us, where you've got foreign-owned uh, companies coming to the U.S., which intuitively we think that the U.S. is too expensive a market for targets, but that's not necessarily the case. There are things that must be driving these foreign-owned uh, companies to come and invest in the U.S. What, what drives the demand from their side to come here? I think it's three primary drivers for foreign companies to want to make acquisitions in the U.S. The first one, obviously, is technology. We're seeing the fourth industrial revolution happen here in the United States where technology is embedded in almost every different uh, vertical or industry, whether it's automotive or manufacturing or artificial intelligence within industrial manufacturing. And so that's spurring a lot of the investments and acquisitions by foreign acquirers here in the U.S. The second is just customer acquisition. Companies are looking to um, acquire customers and essentially diversify their base. And a third driver really is not only diversification within a customer base, but diversifying their own uh, different revenue streams where they could be diversifying in a new analogous business that maybe is very synergistic with their existing line of, of businesses. I agree. One of the things that changed my perspective when we talked about this a while ago was that the focus always on customer bases and so forth, people immediately think China or India where there are you know, billions of potential customers out there completely overlooking the fact that while we may not have the largest population, we probably have one of the richest. So if you can, you know, make a make a uh, uh, stand here in America with a very uh, friendly consumer base, you'll do very, very well. And and that was one of the things that really came up when you and I were talking about uh, the U.S. being such a great target for them. Uh, this can't all be that easy. What are the challenges that are germane to cross-border deals versus a pure domestic deal? Well, there's definitely changes or challenges in regulatory, whether they're antitrust or merger controls. Obviously, CFIUS, which is a which we'll get into later, is a major uh, challenge for for companies uh, investing in in the U.S. And CFIUS is the Committee on Foreign Investments in the United States. And also, you know, tr structure and tax issues. Uh, furthermore, uh, key issues when a, a foreign company comes here is is complying with employment laws 
and it could be unions or the Warren Act is when you want to terminate employees. Intellectual property, data, data privacy, and security are a major concern as well. You're seeing often more and more companies are having inadvertent data breaches. So that's uh, a key issue for any company in, in any type of transaction, particularly for cross-border, where you could have cultural issues and other different challenges in, in data privacy. Also, uh, any corruption is always a, a big challenge for companies and having internal compliances uh, programs in, in, in implemented to correctly deal with those type of issues. And obviously, in every any type of transaction, you know, diligence, culture, deal execution, and also post-closing integration is a major issue. And, and post-closing integration is something that doesn't start after closing. It really starts very early in the acquisition process. Can I ask you, this is a little off topic, but with with all of those challenges that are there, that's probably a role that a firm that that you and your firm will give guidance to if you can't have absolute on the ground consulting recommendations you have resources or can provide resources to companies for the to address those various areas of concern all right we have great breadth for in over 45 countries around the world and have over 70 offices so we have expert, experts in all these areas, and really that, that's what you need is a specialist or cross-border specialist teams because of the numerous landmines involved in, in foreign deals. And you know, some of the really kind of the two big areas that companies are very concerned about right now, obviously, is, is data privacy, but also the, the anti-corruption issues that are, are involved and because of the stiff penalties that can be imposed. And that's really either outbound or inbound. And so we see companies take a very in-depth look at that. One of the things we also look at every transaction, we try to very early on in the process is sit down with the client and discuss what are the really high-risk areas? Where's really the concerns for the company? Where's the value? It could be in the intellectual property, and so we're going to really take a deep dive into the intellectual property to you know, potentially a freedom operate analysis to make sure that they're protected, and if they do buy the company, that they are have the freedom to use it the way that they intended to have synergies with their existing businesses. Talk about SIPIs a little bit. Should we, you know, should every company now be aware of it, not just the ones that are the traditional chemicals and uh, military applications, number one? And then number two, CFIUS is U.S. Explain what happens if other countries have something similar. Well, the, the Committee on Foreign Investments in the U.S. or CFIUS is where a foreign company proposes to acquire a, a target, a U.S. business that generally either produces, designs, tests, manufactures, fabricates, or develops one or more critical technologies. And because of the recent changes in the law, even a 1% investment in a company with critical technologies could trigger a CFIUS filing. So critical technologies has been uh, expanded for CFIUS and includes such things as defense articles and defense services, commodities, software, and technologies on commerce control lists or controlled for reasons related to national security, chemical or biological weapons, missile technologies, 
or for reasons relating to regional stability or surreptitious listening. It also can include energy and things subject to Department of Energy regulations, such as nuclear equipment, software and technologies, and also includes emerging and foundational technologies, which is not to be defined, which is very broad. There's actually currently 27 pilot program industries that have been identified by NAICS code, which will require man mandatory filings. Also, CFIUS applies if the target owns, operates, or manufactures, or supplies critical infrastructure or real estate. And critical infrastructure is broadly defined. It can include systems and assets so vital to the United States that the incapacity or destruction would have a debilitating impact on national security. For example, the purchase or lease or a concession of a foreign person of a, to a foreign person or entity of real estate that is located in the United States that is located with an airport or maritime port or close in proximity to a U.S. military installation that is sensitive for national security reasons. And why should a choir be concerned about CFIUS? Well, U.S. Treasury, which oversees this, can unwind a transaction or impose very harsh equitable remedies and fines. Also, each party can pay up to the amount of the purchase price for the fine. And yes, other countries do have similar laws. The EU also has a similar law. Seven transactions last year were blocked by the EU, and we had over 14 deals either blocked or abandoned during the last two years. Uh, over 240 deals were actually formally reviewed by the U.S. in last year. And so CFIUS has very wide, overreaching kind of application. Previously, before the recent changes, you, uh, a company that was making an acquisition in the U.S. could make an investment of 9.9% or less without uh, being subject to CFIUS. But now it applies even to a 1% investment in critical technologies, and that's a mandatory filing. So it's a very uh, broad, uh, expansive type of law, and it's not just only in the U.S. EU also has these laws as well. And a lot of people also are always concerned about China and why is China such a huge presence in, in cross-border here over the last decade. Well. In 2008, China inbound was $1 billion. However, eight years later, by 2016, inbound was $48 billion. So that alone has led to a lot of the concern over CFIUS. Also, a lot of the changes in capital markets and venture capital. Previously, DARPA was very heavily in involved if there was some type of sensitive technology being developed. But because of the expansion in private markets and venture capital, there's all types of new technologies that are being developed where DARPA is not involved at all anymore. It used to be decades ago, DARPA would be almost involved in any type of development of critical technologies because it was usually done by larger companies. Because of the you know, expansive venture capital over the last 20 or more years, now we're seeing critical technologies being developed even with very small companies. At what stage are you filing for CFIUS? Is this where you're past a letter of intent and you're beginning to get things structured up there? Or is it something where it can be preemptively checked uh, before 
advancing too far into an M&A transaction? Well, generally, we will recommend clients to do a CFIUS uh, assessment of the risk very early on, uh, you know, prior to the letter of intent stage. Typically, uh, companies will be even talking with the treasury even during this uh, letter of intent stage, and that's generally what we recommend so that we can basically um, get some initial advice from the treasury as to whether this is a very high-risk type of assessment, which would require a filing, and in most cases, it can be a mandatory filing. But typically, you will file this generally, um, you know, right around or immediately before the, the execution of the contract, and that's just to sign a contract where you may later do the acquisition, usually in a two-step type transaction. Another question for you, something we didn't uh, talk about, but you, you triggered my my thought process here. Compared to a U.S. deal, I know every deal is different depending on industry and size and everything, but are cross-border deals routinely larger? And if so, how much larger than a domestic deal for technology or pick a, pick a, pick a case study? Well, I mean, historically, we saw a lot of large investments, but you know, now we're seeing even very small investments. Uh, there's been just a, a, a rush of uh, investments over the last decade of of all types of foreign and Asian investors in the U.S., particularly with technology companies. And so that's helped a, a big surge in, in, in venture ca capital investment as well. But we're, we're seeing it across the board. Obviously, the some of the investments by some of the Asian investors has decreased over the last year just because of some of the CFIUS concerns in the regulatory landscape. But there's there's no particular signs for, you know, cross-border or a foreign investment. We're seeing it across the board, all different, you know, shapes and sizes, just like you would see with a domestic acquisition. And, you know, assuming a CFIUS gets taken care of, there are, you know, the other kinds of risks out there that are germane to M&A. A lot of those risks can be uh, mitigated or controlled or completely eliminated with insuring a deal through rep and warranty insurance. And that's been used at an increasing rate in domestic deals. How has uh, rep and warranty impact impacted cross-border M&A? Well, uh, representation and warranty insurance actually was more expansive in the EU and in Europe, you know, before it really came to the U.S. And so it's it's very prevalent in Europe. And generally, there's lower price premiums as well. And as you know, representation and warranty uh, insurance allows essentially allows sellers to walk away with more cash at closing, while you know keeping buyers' interest protected in the form of an insurance policy against loss. So typically, uh, whether it's been domestic buyers in Europe or otherwise, um, there's been, you know, the, the landscape for representation and warranty insurance in, in Europe particularly is fairly widely accepted. And because of the, probably because it's a less litigious type environment too, typically the, the prices and premiums and risk retentions are much lower for a Europe-type acquisition. So, Craig, you mentioned China before and how there's 
the uh, they ramped up very extensively, going from a billion dollars in deals, and in a very short term, they go up to forty-eight billion dollars in transactions. What do you see uh, aside from the slowdown right now, which could be temporary? But what do you see going forward, both in Asia and cross-border M and A overall? What what trends do you see there? Well, I definitely cross-border M and A has slowed down because of CFIUS, and you've seen with the recent trade restrictions that were imposed on Huawei by the U.S., that that's had a, a definitely an impact on uh, perception, at least for Asian investors here in the U.S. I definitely think it'll probably be very slow for a lot of the Asian investments in the U.S. I do think you'll see uh, more and more uh, U.S. Uh, buyers um, throughout the world, whether it's in Asia and Europe, I think some of the big drivers for that, though, is just because there's a lot of dry powder available for not only private equity funds, but also a lot of the large uh, institutional strategics. As I mentioned before, I mean, the top five tech companies have over $340 billion in dry powder, but also you're seeing a lot of kind of old line companies that are really trying to expand, whether it's through technology, whether it's a, a fintech or an agricultural tech or some other kind of emerging tech, or they're trying to diversify their customer base or their um, different revenue streams. And also you're seeing, obviously, you see continued outsourcing, whether it's through manufacturing or assembling um, happen, and that's throughout Asia, and also we're even seeing a lot more in Mexico and Latin America because of the close proximity and probably the more uh, respect or uh, for the cultural aspects of the United States, including protection of IP. So I, I think we'll see um, kind of more and more U.S. companies do a lot more cross-border. Um, you know, the acquisition of tech is obviously a very uh, driving aspect, but obviously the Customers, diversification, aqua hires, and other things too. And I think you're seeing this across all different types of verticals, whether it's artificial intelligence or robotics, fintech. Of course, auto tech's been a very big area, so we're seeing a lot more of different uh, transportation companies that are trying to ex expand. And really, through multiple verticals, there it's a whole electric car, autonomous vehicles. Uh, the communication slash smart car, and also ride sharing too as well. Those are all things that are kind of driving the, the transportation industry, and I think we'll continue to see that. So we'll be doing a lot more U.S. buying outside our borders as opposed to the last couple of years where we've had predominantly Asians coming in buying uh, in into the U.S. Uh, that trend look supportive because it seems that there are more and more service providers out there and advisors such as Baker McKenzie that can make things easier for U.S. buyers to go abroad, where they probably were uh, reluctant to do that because of a lot of the bear traps out there that, you know, they didn't know what they didn't know. And they've got resources like yours now that they can bring to bear that will help. At the same time, CFIUS is making it harder for the foreign-owned companies to come in may be easier for us to go out. So uh, it, it may have not the same sustainability or robust outlook as you do domestic, but it's still fairly positive. Would you agree? 
No, I, I agree. And also we're seeing kind of a trend that's really developed over the last few years is that you'll see, you know, a U.S. Uh, slash Delaware corporation basically as a holding company, but really their operations are, are really abroad. And even though it, any M&A or acquisition is of the Delaware company as a, as a domestic acquisition, essentially the company is, is a foreign company. And so we've seen a lot more of those type of transactions, and that's obviously been spurred by the amount of, of venture capital investment here in the United States as well. And I think we'll see that continue. As I was saying, you know, M&A is also becoming more institutionalized. You know, over 20% of, of all targets are backed by some type of institutional investor, whether it's private equity or venture capital. And so I think we'll see that continue. Obviously, we'll see a lot of, I think, secondary private equity sales. And what that means is one private equity fund selling a portfolio company to another private equity fund. Now, those type of exits account for somewhere close to 30% now of all private equity exits. And I think that trend will continue as well. Well, you've got a lot there for us to consider, particularly just not the cultural differences, uh, but a lot of the other regulatory and compliance traps and so forth, and just how things are different outside, but that shouldn't stop you from taking advantage of some great opportunities out there. And if there are organizations like you and Baker McKenzie that can be brought to help uh, smooth that transition, that's all the better for a lot of owners and founders out there. Craig, how can our audience reach you? Because I'm sure they've got a lot more questions than I can give you. Well, I'll have a presentation, which I'll have on Rubicon's website after this. And then also you can reach me uh, at our website or my email address, which is just craig.lily at bakermckenzie.com. Also, you can reach me through my phone number, 650-251-5947. As I said, I'll have a, a, a cross-border presentation that I'll post on Rubicon's website that can be accessible and will have my information as well. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much. And you can check the show notes here uh, under the Insights tab at Rubicon, R-U-B-I-C-O-N-I-N-S, as in Sam Rubicon, I-N-S dot com. Go to the Insights tab there, and you'll have the show notes along with a link to Craig's uh, presentation. And you can also reach out to Craig directly. Craig, very informative. Uh, you cracked open a lot of different uh, avenues of thought there. So I greatly appreciate it. My audience will appreciate it as well. Have a good day. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Patrick, very much.